0: God, I've been uh, craving uh, this moment all week, Lord, to be able to uh, step into the pulpit and to, Lord, um, talk about this passage with people that I love. And God, we need your help today, that you would allow the word to do the work today, or that your word would accomplish only what uh, it can. Lord, I pray that um, you would unleash it, that you would um, speak to us, Lord, what exactly what you need us to hear today. Lord, I pray that you would help me to to even worship as I preach, Lord, that I might be able to bask in the beauty of Jesus, Lord, that you'd help me to to speak about my loving Father as your Son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever gone through a, a season of your life in which you thought God should have done something but didn't? I'm sure you have. I'm sure many of us have been there. In fact, I was reading an article about Ted Turner. He's the creator of CNN and TBS. He's a multi-billionaire. I don't know if you knew this about Ted Turner. Even though he's an outspoken atheist, he actually grew up very religious. He wanted to be a missionary in high school, and yet his younger sister contracted lupus, ended up dying from lupus, and that created a, a crisis of faith for Ted. In fact, it even led to Ted's father committing suicide because of the tragedy that was taking place in his family. Ted went through a season of his life of profound disappointment and then ended up walking away from the faith. In this article, he, he talked about this. He said, I was taught that God was love, that God was powerful, but I couldn't understand how someone so innocent, referring to his sister, should be made or allowed to suffer so. And then he said this. He said, If that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. You know, looking at John chapter 11, I wonder if Mary and Martha were on the verge of of saying something very similar to Jesus. As we look at John chapter 11 together, we're going to look at these two sisters who go through profound disappointment, had expectations for Jesus to do things a certain way, and yet found themselves perhaps in a crisis of faith just like Ted Turner. Like I wonder if you can relate to that. I wonder if uh, maybe you've gone through a season of your own life where you were on the verge of saying something very similar. You know, disappointment has a tendency to create three different paths in our lives. That path number one we can either lead us to forsaking our faith, just like Ted Turner, where we go through profound disappointment and we think, surely God does not exist. Or maybe we conclude, if God is real, I want nothing to do with that kind of God. Or path number two, where we can kind of remove disappointment from our relationship with God altogether. And that can create a superficial faith because we want to keep our faith, but we're not sure how to reconcile a God who disappoints, and so we kind of cut that out and we don't really think about it. Or path number three, and I think this is what John 11 is calling us to this morning, is that disappointment can actually deepen our relationship with God, that it can actually drive us deeper into who Jesus is and what he wants to accomplish in and through profound disappointment in our lives. I've always wanted to know exactly what God is doing in those seasons of of being disappointed. And I think John 4 shows us at least four truths of what God is doing when we go through these types of moments. So four truths I want to point out in John chapter 11 of what Jesus is up to. Here's number one. I think Jesus wants to magnify his glory. Wants to magnify his glory. John 11, we see the seventh and last recorded miraculous sign by John. And this is perhaps maybe the most dramatic or powerful out of all of these signs. Now, of course, Jesus uh, in his own resurrection later on in John is connected to sign number two when he talked about uh, cleansing the temple. And yet in this sign here, we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but it all begins with a family emergency. Mary, Martha, And Lazarus, we know from the other Gospels, had a very close relationship with Jesus. So close that Mary and Martha, upon seeing their brother, was was very ill. They send word for Jesus to come, implying, "We, we want you to come and heal Lazarus. And yet, the very first thing that Jesus says and the very first thing that Jesus does informs us that there's something else going on in this situation, in verse four, we learn that Jesus talks about how this illness was for the glory of God. Now this sounds very similar to Jesus' assessment that happened in John chapter nine with the blind man. We looked at John nine and verse three, the wrestling with, "Why uh, is this person blind?" And Jesus talks about the glory of God. And so somehow, God's glory is the driving force of this whole situation. and yet... Even though we, we know that theologically, you still read this, this story and in this narrative, this isn't the, the typical response that we, uh, that, we would, that we would want Jesus to have. Like Jesus, upon hearing his good friend is sick, and he responds with, with God's glory. Like, where's the compassion in that? Where's the love? Where's, where's the tenderness that we know Jesus has? But then you get to verse 5, and we can kind of exhale for a moment because we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. We can say, okay, that's, that's the Jesus that we know. Jesus is full of love. And so you go from verse 5, and you would expect that the very next verse, verse 6, would read something like, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately jumped on the fastest horse and went immediately to Lazarus and healed him. Like, you would expect those two verses to kind of to go together, And yet, when you get to verse 6, it doesn't say anything about that. In fact, it says almost the exact opposite. Verse 5 and 6 says, Jesus loved Martha and Mary so, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Isn't that interesting? Jesus so loved them that he did what? That he did nothing. Nothing. It's interesting to think about that in light of what we've seen throughout John's gospel. Like we've seen Jesus heal and show compassion to random strangers left and right. And yet when Jesus encounters Lazarus, a man that he loves, a man that he knows, Jesus seems distant, he seems silent, and he seems almost rather cold and callous. We learn that he intentionally delays. It wasn't as if Jesus lost track of time. This was all part of the plan. Nick, can you imagine just the profound disappointment that filled Mary and Martha's heart when they learned of his intentional delay? You know, They uh, essentially say the same thing uh, when they first encounter Jesus in this passage, verse 21 and verse 32. They both say, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And yet the connection that we learn here in verses five and six shows us that Jesus's love for Lazarus, Jesus's love for these grieving sisters meant somehow that Jesus would not immediately rush in and fix the situation or provide answers or or remove the pain, but somehow Jesus's love for them meant that he would intentionally delay. Then after a few days, In verse 7, it tells us that Jesus decides to go to them, and where they were located was near Judea, and that was only two miles away from Jerusalem. And so the disciples' whole response here is they they probably think that Jesus is crazy. You know, they're kind of interacting with Jesus here, and and at first, you know, Jesus is saying that Lazarus fell asleep, and the disciples are kind of confused. Okay, so you want to go back to Judea? You want to go back two miles away, a half-hour walk from where there's a group of people, powerful people, that want to kill you. Like, you want to go back and, and wake up Lazarus from a nap and, and risk our lives? And even, you know, Thomas, our, our friend here in verse 16, is like, all right, let's do this. Like, let's, we're going to be ready to die with him. This is, this is the end here. I think the disciples here probably think Jesus is, is going a little bit crazy, and then it gets a little bit worse, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Now, we, it's, it's hard for us to feel the full force of that, because sometimes we look at these characters in the Bible, they're just Bible characters. You know, like Lazarus is a, a two-dimensional character, and yet we have to remind ourselves that Lazarus was real. Lazarus had real friends, he had real family, he had a real sense of community, I mean, imagine if if you lost someone dear to you, close to you, and Jesus, you know, comes up to you and says, man, I'm glad I was not there. I'm glad that I did not stop it. Like this is coming across very cold and distant Jesus. And yet look at verse 15. Jesus says that all of this is happening for a reason and for a purpose. Verse 15 says, so that you may believe. It's an important verse there. In fact, we're going to see this connection between belief in Jesus and giving God glory. There's always a connection there. That this, this passage is telling us that in the midst of disappointment and unanswered questions and profound pain, when you choose to believe and trust in Jesus, that magnifies glory to God. But when you tell God, God, I don't understand this, but I'm going to choose to believe in you, God, you don't feel good right now, but I trust that you are good. That gives God glory. I think verse 4 is the key to this passage. Verse 4 is the key in our own lives when we go through situations like this, that God oftentimes is operating on a different value system than we do. That God values belief and growth and his glory over our comfort and even over answers to our questions. You know, I think we can so easily slip into viewing God as, as kind of like a vending machine. And you walk up to that vending machine and, and you put in the exact amount of money, you press the correct buttons, and what happens? You get exactly what you want, right? We can sometimes view God like that. He's this cosmic vending machine. You know, God, I'm going I'm to give you money. I'm going to give the church money and tithe. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to attend church. I'm going to be moral so that... You give me exactly what I want. And I wonder if Mary and Martha had that type of viewpoint. I wonder if they had that type of, uh, of, of equation for God. You know, God, I'm close to you. I've got this relationship with you, Jesus. Therefore, you should heal my brother when I want you to heal him. And I think this passage is telling us that God doesn't operate that way. God's not a cosmic genie where he uh, you know, fulfills our wishes. This passage is showing us that sometimes God disappoints Sometimes God intentionally delays. Sometimes God is silent so that we would understand that life is not about us, but life is about God receiving glory. So verse 4 is not just something we know up here, but it's something that's true in our own hearts, that Jesus wants to magnify his glory. Secondly, we learn in this passage another truth is that Jesus wants to strengthen belief in him Jesus and his disciples begin to head toward Bethany, in Judea. And as they approach, Martha comes out to Jesus and wants to have a word or two with him. And I think in this conversation, we see the priority of belief that Jesus wants to, to show Martha what true belief actually looks like. This is a key theme throughout this passage. We see it in verses 25 through 27, but we also are going to see it in verse 40, where right before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, we see that that connection again. And so as Jesus gets to Bethany, he's met by Martha, and you have to kind of visualize this conversation for a moment, that before Martha starts to utter the words of verse 21, you can almost picture Martha holding back tears as she says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now imagine saying that to the Lord Jesus. Imagine the emotion that is filling that one statement. I think it's important for us to, to, to understand that there's, there's kind of a question behind this statement. There's, there's almost a rebuke that Martha is giving Jesus in this moment. I think the question behind this statement is, Lord, why didn't you come? You could have come. You you could have prevented all of this. You, You could have stopped all of this. So the question here is, Lord, where were you? Love that that verse is in there for us because I wonder, have you asked that question before? Have you made that kind of statement before God? Maybe you've thought, Lord, where were you when my parents got divorced? Lord, where where were you? If you you would have been here, my my own marriage wouldn't be in shambles right now. Lord, if you would have been here, my, my kids would still be following after you. God, where were you when that illness was diagnosed? So we have all these questions before the Lord. We can relate to Martha, and yet watch what Jesus does here. He turns to her and replies, your brother will rise again. Now, on the outside, we we know what happens, but on the the surface here, this this kind of comes across very insensitive. I mean, imagine yourself being at a funeral where someone tragically lost a family member. You slap them on the back and you say, what are you crying for? Like, have you read the left behind books? It's called the rapture. Like, this is all going to turn out well. Like, it'd be very insensitive to do. Yet notice what happens here. She hears what Jesus is saying and says, I know he will rise again from the resurrection from the dead. What is Martha doing here? Martha, I think, is distancing herself from Jesus by using abstract doctrine and theology. I think what she is doing here is she is putting up a wall between her and Jesus, and she's saying, Jesus, I know. I know all the prophecy charts I know the the resurrection is some date out there in the future, and she is trying to stiff-arm Jesus, not letting Jesus into her heart to minister to her pain and her unanswered questions and her own disappointment. Now, watch what Jesus does. Jesus leads her to the place of opening up her heart in the midst of pain by saying, I am the resurrection. You see that? You catch that there? I think Jesus is correcting Martha here by saying, look, Martha, you think the resurrection is a thing? You think the resurrection is an event? You think it's some date out there in the future? But what you do not see is that the resurrection is about me, it is about my work, and it is about my person. See, our faith and our belief in Jesus is is strengthened when we connect our theology to the person and work of Jesus. See, when we just get caught up in theology and doctrine and we don't allow it to point to Jesus and connect to him, we will never grow in our faith and our understanding of who he is. See, Jesus uses this type of language all throughout John. He says, I am the light of the world, I am, The door, I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. I am, I am, I am. He wants Martha to be consumed with who Jesus is and not abstract doctrine. I think Jesus gets to the heart of it here in verse 26. Martha, do you believe this? Notice he doesn't say, do you know this? Do you uh, agree with this? Do you know the facts about this? But do you believe this? This? And I think that's the question for us this morning. I think Jesus wants us to wrestle with, do you believe this? That everything that he is about is about us believing in Jesus and not just random facts about him. I think Jesus is explaining to Martha and he's explaining to us this morning that the gospel, the point of the gospel at least, is not about the future resurrection and being united with loving friends and, and loving family members where there's no pain and there's no suffering that the gospel is not about this get out of uh, hell free card. The gospel is not about all of the benefits that Jesus will give us, but the gospel is primarily about receiving Jesus himself when we believe. So I think that's where he's bringing Martha to this point. Do you believe this? I think Martha answers this question. Yes, I believe you. I think this whole Christianity thing is just a good reminder. It's not about using Jesus as a hoop to jump through to get what we want, but this whole Christianity thing is about Jesus being the means and the end, that God will use these disappointments, these hard things to strengthen our belief in him. I think this is oftentimes what he's doing in the midst of hard things is he's trying to cultivate intimacy with us, that he won't always give us answers to our questions. He won't always remove the pain or relieve the pain, but he will promise to give us himself. And your belief will strengthen when what you desire is not answers, but it's him. So Jesus is strengthening Martha in this passage. Thirdly, another truth I think we can hang our hat on when we go through seasons like this, times like this, is that Jesus loves emphatically. Jesus loves Emphatically, this is so important, and honestly, depending on how you believe this, it will lead you to concluding one of two things. Either you will judge Jesus' love through the filter of your own circumstances, or you will judge your own circumstances through the filter of his love. And I think John 11 is calling us towards the latter. Look at this this conversation between Martha and Jesus ends. And Martha goes and tells Mary, verse 28, Mary comes out and has this similar conversation with Jesus, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then we notice that that Mary begins to weep. The Jews around Mary begin to weep. And we notice something about Jesus that is so very powerful. We notice that Jesus is deeply moved, that Jesus is is emotionally stirred. We see that Jesus is actually weeping in this moment, that Jesus is looking out there and and he's seeing the crying, he's seeing the pain, he's seeing death right before him and the curse of sin play out right in front of him and it moves him. And I think as he demonstrates his love for them, we see the heart of God in this scene. In fact, there's a, there's a phrase here that's used a couple of times that, that really doesn't translate well in the English from the Greek. It's that phrase, deeply moved. It occurs in verse 33 and in verse 38. It's not a great translation. It, it should be translated in, in the raw form to snort with anger. That what we see here is that Jesus lets out this involuntary, loud, emotional gasp, like the wind was just knocked out of him because of his love for these grieving sisters and for Lazarus, who he had a close relationship with. Look, it's amazing when you stop and think about this. Like, why did Jesus express so much emotion in this moment when he knows what's about to happen in a couple of moments? Like Jesus is God, he knows he's gonna raise Lazarus. Why is he displaying his love by walking alongside these Jews and these women through their deepest pain? It's because he loves them. It's because Jesus demonstrates his love for us by entering into our sorrow, into our pain and walking alongside us through the hardest of times. Like what does it mean that God loves Mary and Martha? What does it mean that God loves us? I have to admit to you this morning, like, this passage hit me right between the heart because I was just thinking about this, and I very quickly, like, ran over verse 5. Like, I read verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary. I quickly moved on. I got to this part of of him being deeply moved. I'm like, yeah, 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 I I know that God loves. I know that God is deeply moved. And I was confronted with this passage, have I been so familiar with God's love that it's become this abstract truth, but it doesn't penetrate my heart? And that's a challenge for me as I'm aware of God's love, talk about God's love in front of hundreds of people every single week. Have I made God's love so fluffy that it doesn't change me and it doesn't penetrate my own being man, I was confronted with this thinking through, does Jesus' love storm the gates of my heart in any tangible way? Is Jesus' love powerful enough to sustain us through the hardest of times, not just something we slap on a coffee mug, not just something we put on the bumper stickers of our cars, but does Jesus' love have the power to keep us and to hold us when life gets really hard? And this passage says yes and amen. This passage is displaying for us Jesus' love in action, not just words on a page, but in action of exactly what God does for us when we have hard questions that aren't being answered and we have profound disappointment. Jesus loves and he's with you and he's for you and he's working in ways that we can't always see. I love Hebrews chapter four who puts this in a different way, but says, since then we have a great high priest, referring to Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Read that again. For we do not have a high priest who is cold, who is distant, who is unable to relate with us, No, no, no. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So what's our response to that? He says, so then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus sees you, he walks beside you, and he loves you. Maybe another reminder for us as we think about God's love, knowing God loves us can only help us in the midst of disappointment when we believe that God's love's not dependent upon us. just want to remind us about that, that if you believe God loves you and it's dependent on your performance or it's dependent on how good you are, you're always going to second-guess his love. You're always going to be wondering, have I done enough good? Have I been moral enough? Or, or is his love going to move on away from us? See, the only only way that we can actually have confidence of God's love for us in the midst of disappointment is through the gospel. That the gospel is this great declaration that God loves you unconditionally, not because of you, but because of Jesus. That God has declared and He's forever settled His acceptance over you because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in His resurrection. So look, you never have to doubt his love. You never have to wonder, is his love with me and for me in the midst of pain and disappointment? Because all we have to do is look to the gospel because we're reminded that he will always love us. So Jesus loves emphatically. Last thing I want to point out here, the fourth truth is that Jesus offers transforming hope that Jesus magnifies his glory, Jesus wants to strengthen our belief in him, Jesus loves emphatically. Now Jesus offers a hope that this world has never seen. I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this story, as I've been able to dive into it all week, is I don't actually believe that Mary and Martha knew exactly what they were asking Jesus for. Like, they both come to Jesus at different points and times, and they both say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And yet, when you notice in this passage, when Jesus approaches the tomb, when he sees the stone against it, and he declares, take away that stone. Did you notice Martha's response in verse 39? That her response was was not gratitude, it was not thankfulness, it was not, okay, guys, here we go. Jesus is going to display his power. He's going he's to raise my brother from the dead. Get ready for this. No, no, no. Her response in essence is, oh, no, 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 Jesus. I, I don't think you should do that. Like, like my, my dead brother's body ha- has a stench to it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fill the air. Like, like, no, no, no. You don't want to do that. See, Martha is afraid of what removing that stone will do within her own heart, she doesn't want to be disappointed again. She doesn't want that that stone to be removed and for that stench to fill the air and for that to be a reminder of the pain that almost hijacked her faith in God. She's, She's afraid of what this moment is going to reveal. And yet Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, I think Martha is lacking hope because she has an, an underdeveloped faith and believe in Jesus. And yet they take the stone away, and in the midst of this horrendous stench that filled the air, Jesus lifted up his eyes And his prayer was essentially that all the people around him would believe. And then after that, he cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I love that picture there. Jesus is shouting at death. Jesus is commanding death, and death obeys Jesus. And we see Jesus declaring this over Lazarus, and we see Lazarus, who was dead for four days, his hands, his feet bound up, his face was wrapped with cloth. He comes out, and this is a living picture of John chapter 10, verse 27, of the true sheep hearing the voice of the good shepherd, recognizing it and responding and obeying it. That Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Martha was so concerned about this stench. She was so concerned about the smell, whether it was humiliation, whether it was going to challenge her own disappointment. But Jesus knew that this stone had to be rolled away so that the people would not smell the stench of death, but that they would experience the glory of God. She she, she was expecting the stench of decomposition, but Jesus knew what they would experience would be the glory of recomposition. See, I think this is what God does in the midst of our disappointment and our pain, is that when we go through those hard times, what we see around us is the decay of sin and the decay of decomposition. And yet what Jesus is doing behind the scenes is he wants us to see the glory of recomposition by using it for our good and for his glory. Like, haven't you noticed that in your own life? Like, haven't you gone through things and you're wondering where in the world is God Why isn't he answering these questions? And then you go through that and you're wondering, is good going to come out of this? Is he ever going to reveal his purposes? And you might go through that weeks, months, years might go by. And then Jesus eventually removes the stone for you to see, ah, that's what God was doing. That was what his purposes were for allowing me to go through that pain and go through that disappointment. Look, Jesus will always remove that stone for you to see his purposes, whether in this life or the life to come. That you will see the glory of recomposition, of making things new. Look, so I think this passage is a reminder to put our hope in God because he's oftentimes up to something that we can't always see And I think the reason why we can hang our hat on on him offering us hope is because in this passage, John is painting a picture for us of a scene that we will see again soon. That in just a couple of chapters, we're going to have almost like this deja vu moment. Like in a couple of chapters, we're going to see a a cave with a tomb and a a stone over it. We're going to see a group of women who are also weeping A group of women who aren't sure what's going on. We're going to see a group of Jews who are doubting Jesus's power and authority saying, man, if he did all of these miracles, why couldn't he prevent this? See, John 11 is a foreshadow of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. See, the next time that we see Jesus go head to head with death, will be on the cross of Calvary, and that won't be a simple conversation, but on the cross, Jesus will be making an eternal transaction by taking the place of sinners and bringing death to death forever and ever. See, this is a foreshadow of what is to come. John is showing us the hub of the gospel, that Jesus offers real hope because he will get up on a cross. He will go toe-to-toe with death He will snap the neck of death, showing victory over it, showing that sin has no more power over us by raising from the dead, and that John 11 is showing us what hope is actually grounded in. It's not grounded in your circumstances changing. It's not grounded in you receiving answers. It's not you knowing everything, but your hope should be grounded in the fact that death is not final, that your disappointment in your season of life is not the end, but that Jesus will get the last word. Look, hope, I think, is realized in our darkest moments when we remember his love for us in his darkest hour, that him on the cross taking our place, beating our worst enemy, fills us with hope. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. You know, I think Jesus' response to that As what we see in John 11 is he was there. He was working. He was doing things behind the scenes that Mary and Martha could not understand or could not fathom. Look, I just want to encourage you this morning, just like Mary and Martha who waited four days with, you know, no sign of Jesus showing up. You might be in a season of your life. You might be on day four today. You might be on week four, month four, year four, decade four, and you might be going through some type of hardship and there's no sign of, of Jesus at all, let me encourage you, Jesus is on the move, that Jesus is coming, that sooner or later he's going to remove that stone in this life or the next for you to see his great purposes, for you to see his glory, and to hope in that. When you hope in that, that's what transforms us in the waiting and in the suffering. And I love this picture Of Jesus' love towards us. I'll close with this. This picture of Jesus just standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. You know, as the stone is rolled away, Jesus, out of love for Lazarus, is is just filled with the stench of Lazarus' death. And yet we notice that Jesus beckons Lazarus to rise and come forward. Look, I love that picture because that is exactly what Jesus does for us. That we all can relate to Lazarus because we all have been dead in our own sins. And as Jesus stands before each and every one of us, out of his love for us, he smells the deadness of our sin. He smells the decaying stench of our shame and our brokenness. And yet, out of love, he beckons us to rise and to come forward in faith and to believe in him. Look, we're all Martha, we're all Lazarus in this story. We all can relate to being dead and for him to come and to give us a resurrection through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you hear Jesus' voice to you this morning? Jesus says to Lazarus, rise and come forward. And I think there are some in this room who have not yet believed in Jesus. Do you hear him saying that to you, to rise and to come forward in faith and belief in Jesus? Look, to leave the tomb of your sin, to leave the linens of your shame, To allow God's power to unbind you from the slavery of sin, to remove the the grave clothes of your brokenness, so that God may clothe you with his righteousness and his love and his forgiveness. He's saying, Come and rise, come forward in faith and believe. Look, have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus today? Look, maybe you're a person who's come to church often and you haven't made that transaction of putting your faith in Jesus, but there's something about Lazarus' story that you can relate to. Maybe you feel in a very palpable way the deadness of your own sin and you want to place your faith in Jesus this morning. Look, I want to have a conversation with you, at least offer that after the service. Would love to explain what it means to trust in Jesus that you can walk out of the grave of your own sin and find new life in Jesus. He loves you, loves you despite your sin, despite your brokenness, and wants to give you new life. Well, in the midst of disappointment, you have three paths. You can forsake your faith, you can remove disappointment from your theology, or you can allow it to deepen your belief and trust in Jesus. And I pray that this passage will lead you to choosing option three, because he wants to magnify his glory in you, he wants to strengthen your belief. He wants to love you emphatically, and he wants to fill you with hope. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the powerful reality of the gospel. God, we have no category to fully grasp what the gospel accomplishes in Jesus. God, we have your word that helps guide us in better understanding the the reality that you have conquered death. That you have freed us from the slavery of sin. Lord, that you have promised new hope in in Christ. So God, I pray for us whose story matches with Lazarus in a spiritual way. That that we have been called out of our own grave, out of our own tomb. And we have found new life in you, Jesus. I pray that you would fill us with a heart of worship for you today. I pray that you would remind us of who we would be without you, Jesus. Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those who are here today who want to place their faith and trust in you. God, would you prompt them to do that? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.